Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 32. 32nd Psalm. Mark Twain noted that man is the only animal that blushes or that needs to. Paul Harvey, who has a daily radio show and has interesting quips from different areas in the states and the world, had in one section one day in his For What It's Worth commentary uh, a little story about a classified ad in Peoria, South Africa, and it was a misprint, and so it had to be printed several times. Um, The first print was like this. The Reverend A.J. Jones has a color TV set for sale. Telephone 555-1313 after 7 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him, cheap. (laughs) So the next day, the newspaper had to print a correction. And uh, they put, quote, We regret any embarrassment caused to Reverend Jones by a typographical error in yesterday's editions. It should have read, The Reverend A.J. Jones has a color TV set for sale cheap. Telephone 555-1313 and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him after 7 p.m. <laughs> Once again, there was a problem, and so the next day the article in the same newspaper read, <clears throat> quote, The Reverend A.J. Jones informs us he has received several annoying telephone calls because of an incorrect advertisement in yesterday's paper. It should have read, The Reverend A.J. Jones has... A color TV set for sale. Cheap. Telephone after 7 p.m. 555-1313 and ask for Mrs. Donnelly who loves with him. (laughs) Now this is the third time they did this. So finally, the next day in the newspaper, it read, quote, Please take notice that I, Reverend Jones, have no TV set for sale. I smashed it. I have not been carrying on with Mrs. Donnelly. She was until yesterday my housekeeper. The point is, sin naturally brings with it consequences of guilt and shame and the need for forgiveness. And it's awfully embarrassing to be thought of as guilty when you're not guilty. Now, there are people who are guilty, but who refuse to admit it. Uh, They don't deal with it. They don't think that they are guilty. In fact, today, in our generation, guilt is passé. It's puritanical. It's outmoded. Get rid of guilt, whatever you do. It's downright cruel and inhibiting to the creative spirit. Even the uh, advertisement for TCBY frozen yogurt says, All of the pleasure, none of the guilt. A New York City caterer, offered new menus on her, new items on her menu, low in sodium, low in calories, low in cholesterol, and uh, the menu is called Dining Without Guilt. Even Dr. Laurel Richardson in her study called The New Other Woman said, an affair with a married man is no longer deemed as so terrible. Forty percent of married men report having affairs, and for those with incomes over $70,000, the figure is 70%. She reports that women involved in such affairs do not regard this as sin. Now we come to Psalm 32, which is 
David's way of handling guilt. Handling sin. He brings it before God. He asks for forgiveness. He confesses it. And then he relies upon God's mercy and God's grace. It is a psalm. It is a hymn of happiness because of forgiveness. He's happy to be forgiven. It's related to Psalm 51. Most of us are familiar with Psalm 51 more so than this, but it's a psalm after David sinned with Bathsheba, after he killed her husband Uriah the Hittite. Psalm 51 is when he was found out. Psalm 32 was written probably as a sequel to Psalm 51 that gives further instruction. At the very beginning of the psalm, it says, a psalm of David, a contemplation. That says that in my Bible. In Hebrew, it's a maskil or a maschil. It is a poetic rendering meant for us to think about, to give some time and mull over it because it's weighty in its instruction. That's the idea of a maskil. As we begin in verse 1 and 2, David writes about the peace of being cleansed, the peace of cleansing. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice that it begins with a happy note, blessed, or it's plural in the original. Oh, the happinesses, oh, the blessednesses of this man. It sounds a lot like what psalm? Psalm 1, the very first psalm opens up, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly and so forth. Now there is a difference. It's obvious. Psalm 1 is, here's the happy person who walks in God's way. Psalm 32 is about the man who doesn't walk in God's way, has wandered from God's way and sinned, but has returned, confessed his sin, turned from his sin, and now is happy because of the forgiveness that is given. I want you to look in uh, verses 1 and 2 a little more closely with me. There's three words that describe sin and give us a, a threefold picture of it. First of all, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. The word transgression is the Hebrew word pesha, and it literally means a going away, a departure, or a rebellion against God. A rebellion. It describes a deliberate act. It's not, a, it's not an ignorance. It's not like, man, I didn't know, and I, I'm really sorry. Had I known, I wouldn't have done it. It's not something done in ignorance. It's basically, here's the line, don't cross it. And the attitude that would say, watch me. I'm going to do it anyway. It's a willful, deliberate crossing of the line. And really, that is a description of sin, right? Basically, the description or... Uh, the definition of sin is when I usurp my will over God's will. That's what makes it so evil. And that's why in Psalm 51, David said, after this sin that he writes about even here, against thee and thee only, Lord, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, we may read that and go, excuse me, David, time out here. You didn't just sin against God. You sinned against, let's see, Bathsheba, Uriah, her husband, and violating his wife and killing him. You sinned against the whole nation of Israel. How can you say, God, against you and you only have I sinned? Because principally, principally, the darkest, deepest, blackest part of sin is that it is against God. That's why transgression or this wandering is mentioned first. Next, he says in the same verse, whose sin is covered. Now, that word sin is different. It means a missing of the mark. 
a deficiency. It's very related, uh, very close to a word you're familiar with from the New Testament, harmatia, used 174 times in the New Testament. It means a missing of the mark. Same word, both the word here, chata in Hebrew and harmatia in Greek, mean a missing of the mark. It's a term borrowed from archery, where a guy would be out there with his bow and arrow. He would shoot the arrow, but it would fall short of the target. There's the target, the glory of God, the law of God. There's the sin. I missed the mark. And that's why we read in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So sometimes sin is a deliberate transgression. Sometimes sin is an act of ignorance. There's a third word that is mentioned here in verse 2. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. This is a very strong term. It's the word avon in Hebrew. It means something crooked, something twisted, something perverted. And really here we have a threefold description of sin. Sometimes it's a deliberate transgression. Sometimes it's done in ignorance. But sometimes sin manifests itself in a very perverse, crooked, twisted way. Like this story out of USA Today not so long ago. Several men, one carrying a crowbar, beat Deletha Word, 33, and chased her until she plunged to her death in the Detroit River early Saturday as dozens of people watched. Some even cheered. Her car had been crashed into by a car driven by one of her attackers. The crime and the presence of some 50 spectators, some of whom may have goaded Word's attackers, has prompted revulsion and disbelief. There's a picture of the manifestation of sin when it becomes twisted, crooked, perverted. People actually cheering somebody else beating somebody to death. Now, once again, before we move on, notice those terms. Look at them one more time. Transgression, sin, iniquity. Notice he doesn't say accident, blunder, weakness. He calls sin, sin, transgression. Iniquity, terms that are very not, uh, very unpopular today. Words that are being trying to be pushed out of our vocabulary. People say there is no such thing as sin. That's unnecessary. Don't call it sin. Remove that from your vocabulary. All it's going to do is cause guilt. We live in a society that has a mechanistic view of mankind. All the way from the evolutionary theory by Charles Darwin to the behavioral psychology of Harvard's B.F. Skinner. Man is an animal biologically. There's no such thing as sin spiritually. Thus, there should never be the feeling of guilt. So now let's just figure out how to manage my guilt. That even spills over into the spiritual realm. For instance, in Hinduism, Hinduism teaches that good and evil are relative terms. Man can't help but stumble over obstacles as he strives to know himself. And if you blow it in this life, you can have another chance in the next life. You're reincarnated into something else and something else or someone else. You have many chances. Then uh, Unitarians, who call themselves Christians, they believe that man is essentially good and can save himself. They call it the redemption of the character. I will save myself, self-help. Then there's Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science. 
but that says there's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as evil. There's no such thing as disease or death. It's all in the mind. And so you must master the mind. The problem is, if you don't deal with sin as sin, you'll never ask forgiveness for it. You'll never need a Savior. So in the secular world, in the spiritual world, and even in some so-called Christian circles, the idea of sin and guilt is being pushed aside. What I want you to notice is not only the three words for sin here, but notice there's a matching set of words of how God deals with it. You have transgression, you have sin, you have iniquity, but you have three terms next to them that talks about what God does with them. Notice the first one. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. It's a great term. It means to lift up and carry away. It speaks of somebody having a burden that weighs them down. And to forgive is to lift that burden and take it away from them so you can walk straight. The best illustration of this comes from John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it yet, get a copy and read it. It's a story of Pilgrim, or Christian as he is called in the book, who is on his journey from the city of destruction where he was born to the celestial city which is heaven. But at first he's walking down this narrow path and he's got a burden on his back, his own sin. The story says, So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders, fell from off his back, and began to tumble, and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more. That's forgiveness. Next is the term covered, whose sin is covered. That means to conceal, to hide from sight, from, from somebody's face. Uh, it's a term that comes from the Day of Atonement. Remember when the high priest, once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, would take the blood of a sacrificed animal, walk into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkle some of that blood on a box called the Ark of the Covenant. The top of the box, that lid became what was called the mercy seat as blood was sprinkled on it because inside the box was a copy of the Ten Commandments broken, which symbolized man's sin has broken God's law. But the blood covers man's failure. By the way, God said, the only place that I'll meet with you is right there on the mercy seat. I'll meet with you in the very place where your sin is dealt with. And so I shoot the arrow, I fall short. God comes over and kicks dirt over the failure, over the arrow. He covers the sin. There's another term in verse 2. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. The word not impute, that's a bookkeeping term now. We had an archery term. Here's a bookkeeping term. It means that God doesn't put sin to my ledger, to my account. Paul used this word so often in Romans chapter 4. What he was saying is this. Jesus came, died on the cross, and God writes the righteousness of Christ to your ledger. And he writes your sin to Christ's side of the ledger. So he takes your sin but gives you, imputes to you his righteousness. What a joy it is to have sin dealt with this way. To know, as we read here, that my sin is forgiven, covered by the blood, and all of those things, as perverse as they have been, are not written to my account. Do you know that joy? Do you live in that joy? 
Do you walk around going, yeah, I know others can do that, but I just can't really, it's so hard for me to really believe that. I mean, I've done so many bad things. David obviously is living in the joy of that. He's speaking and singing about it even here. Now keep in mind, David did some pretty twisted things. We're talking about adultery, deceit, murder. But he finally let it out and dealt with it. And I don't know your backgrounds, all of them. Some of you may have some pretty hefty sins chalked up to your account. Cheating, stealing, lying, perversity, adultery, homosexuality. You may have even cursed God. But you can be forgiven. That's the gospel. You can be forgiven. In fact, the only way for you to deal with your guilt complex is the forgiveness that comes at the cross. That is the place God will meet with you to deal with guilt at the foot of the cross. The Associated Press had an interesting little story about a new product on the market called disposable guilt bags. Sounds hokey. Ten plain paper bags with written instructions. Here's the instructions. Place the bag securely over your mouth. Sounds like a stewardess, right? Take a deep breath and blow all of your guilt out and then dispose of the bag immediately. You think, yeah, right. Who's going to buy that? 2,500 people did. Almost immediately. They sent in $2.50 a pop for this little kit, and this thing made money. Well, that shows you how much people want to get rid of guilt, but you don't get rid of it that way. It comes by forgiveness being granted to you by God. It comes by that cleansing that comes by Jesus Christ saying your sins are remitted, they're forgiven. And you know what? When God buries your sin... In the deepest sea, he puts out a sign that says, no fishing allowed. That's why David, after this, could say, oh, how happy is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Sin is covered. Iniquity is not imputed to him. Now, as we get into verse 3, that was the piece of cleansing. We have here the, the pain of concealing, as I call it. What David does is, after talking about how great it is to be forgiven, he takes us back to before he felt that way, a time before he confessed it, before he got it out and had the forgiveness of God. He talks about keeping it in. Look at verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And then that word selah, which means pause. Think about it. He talks about keeping silent. Now, we know that David did not immediately confess his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, right? He waited a while, a long while. In fact, some scholars think about a year before Nathan came to him and confronted him. And uh, there he was. He had committed adultery, murdered Uriah, brought Bathsheba to his house, lived with her, and just thought, I'll, I'll sit on it. I'll just not stir anything up. It'll all pass away. But lest you think that David enjoyed many a guilt-free evening and slept well. Know that he didn't. Verse 3 and 4 indicate that he had very, very miserable nights. Let me read verse 3 and 4 to you in another translation, the New Living Bible. When I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy upon me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Now, here's a guy trapped in misery, haunted by memories, going through fever, sleepless nights. 
Folks, sin is bad for your health. It causes stress, anxiety, worry. Here's David waiting a long time going through this pain of concealing it. And what's worse? The worst of it all is that you feel so terribly alone. So many miles from God. So isolated, so alienated. It's very, very difficult. Dwight L. Moody, um, the evangelist from Chicago, went to a city with another evangelist and had several nights of evangelistic crusades preaching the gospel. Man is a sinner by nature and choice, needs a savior, and you must come to Christ. The evangelistic gospel. He preached it with another evangelist. There was a man at the meeting who was under conviction all week long. He eventually gave his life to Christ, I understand, but he went up to one evangelist and said, I wish you and Moody had never come to this city. Before you came, I wasn't troubled about my sins. You talk of peace and joy, but you've turned my soul into a living hell. I can't stay away from the meetings, and yet to come to them only makes me worse. You promise salvation, but all I find is torment. I wish you would leave, then I get back to my old peace. Oh, how many people love their old peace. Till you come along. You've got a Bible in your hand, and you sing a song, or you smile, and you might even say, Jesus loves you. And what's their response? Would you be quiet? What did I say wrong? Oh, look, I don't want to talk about it. You've touched a nerve. And if you talk about the gospel, boy, they can get so upset. They're holding something in. They're concealing something. They don't want to talk about Jesus. After all, I'll have to confess my sin. One person described the way some of us handle guilt. It's like the lights on the dashboard of your car. Now picture the scene. You're driving down the road. Red light flashes. It's telling you something. It's saying, pull over. Something's wrong. Look under the hood. Fix me. Now, you've got a choice when that light goes off. A, you can stop and you can deal with it. Or you could carry a a small hammer in your glove box. (laughs) You drive down the street. Red light goes on. You take out the hammer. (laughs) Great. Took care of it. No red light. No one will know the difference for a while. Tell that your car is over on the side of the road billowing smoke because you've seized the motor. Eventually, people will know, but at first, no one may know. Some of us carry those little convenient hammers in the glove box of our conscience. And we're going through the road of life, and the Holy Spirit flashes His light. Don't do this. Stay away from this. This is a warning. Better deal with this. And we can take out our little hammers and smash the light with excuses like, Hey, well, everybody's doing it. Or saying things like, Look, I'm only human. What do you expect? Or you can stop and deal with it and fix it. David held it all in and for up to a year was experiencing that pain after smashing all the lights. He feels so miserable. I have met what the Bible calls carnal Christians. They claim to be Christians. They live after the flesh. And sometimes they put on a smiley face like, Hey, man, I'm getting away with it. Everything's great. Yeah, no problem. Deep inside, they are miserable like this. And that brings us to the next point in verse 5. I call it the power of confessing. He goes from this point of this seething pain inside to verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you remember the story, how this happened? Do you remember Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12 coming to confront the king who's sitting on the throne, married, seemingly smug with Bathsheba? And Nathan comes to confront him with his sin, but he didn't get in his face. He sort of takes him off guard. He tells him a little story. David likes stories. It was a story about a, a sheep. David was a shepherd. It fit. And basically something like this, David, let me tell you what happened. There was this poor family. They had one little pet lamb. And can you believe it? Another guy who had a lot of money and a lot of sheep stole the pet lamb from that family, brought it home, killed it, and ate it. David said, that man will die. He must surely die. Now, in that unguarded moment, when David is thinking about somebody else's sin, in that unguarded moment, Nathan drops four powerful words. You are the man. Bam. Nailed him. Guilty. Confession. It's like a story I read of Elizabeth Brinton, a 13-year-old Girl Scout who sold, get this, 11,200 boxes of Girl Scout cookies. I mean, she won the prize, whatever it was. And they asked her, how'd you sell so many cookies? She said, well, you got to look people in the eye and make them feel guilty. <laughs> Imagine the look of Nathan, what it was like, as he tells this story and then looks him in the eye and says, you are that guy. But that's what caused David to break. He confessed. The confrontation brought confession. He said, I have sinned. You know what, though? I believe a wave of relief swept over David when he said, I have sinned. I believe he felt so relieved that somebody else knew about it. At least he doesn't have to keep it in. He doesn't have to go through the pain of trying to cover it up. At least it's out. At least it can be dealt with. There's an emotional, spiritual release when you confess sin. I confessed it. He says that in verse 5, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Confess means more than to admit. Yeah, okay, I admit. I think I did a few wrong things. The word confess means I say the same thing about my sin that God says about it. I call it sin. I deal with it. I admit what God says about it is true. See, many people will pray, okay, okay, God, look. If I have sinned, I want to say I'm sorry. If you have sinned. Why do you bother praying about it if you're not sure? It also means more than a temporary bad feeling. It implies genuine confession, which leads to repentance. Which brings up this issue. How can I tell if confession is real, it's genuine? Let me give you four simple ways, four little tests to see if confession is genuine, sincere confession. Number one, an open admission. Is required. An open admission. Look what David says. I acknowledged my sin to you. Not, Lord, I did a little accident. I acknowledged my sin to you. Now today, nobody wants to take responsibility for their sin. It's not my fault, man. I'm a victim. And so there's this blame shifting. It's society. It's my environment. It's my parents that made me the way I am. Yes, it did contribute to the way you are, but you're still responsible. Others blame shift and they say it's genetics. I have a genetic propensity to anger. I'm sorry, all right? It's not my fault. I'm a victim. 
I've even read of people who are now saying, you people have a biological propensity toward adultery. So it's like, great, just find a gene and you can blame it all on genetics. Where did all this blame shifting start? Oh, Genesis. (laughs) With Adam, the very first dude, and his wife, when they sinned, and God called Mr. Adam on the carpet and said, Hey, buddy, what have you done here? And he said, It's the woman you gave me. (laughs) Guys are still doing that today. It's the check. But he was really blaming God. It's the woman you gave me. It was your idea. You said it's not good that man should be alone. Uh, I was happy until you brought her along. (laughs) Blaming it on her and then really on God. There was a story about a Prussian king called Frederick the Great. He toured the Berlin prison one day as he walked through the halls to view the prisoners. As the prisoners saw that great king coming down the halls, they all fell to their knees and said, It's not my fault. I'm innocent. I shouldn't be here. And they each proclaimed their own innocence, except for one man who was silent. Frederick saw him and stopped and turned to him and said, I suppose you're going to tell me you're innocent too, and it's not your fault, right? The man stood to his feet. No, sir, he said. I'm guilty. I deserve to be here. Frederick, with a little smile on his face, called the guard and said, Come here, release this rascal before he corrupts all these fine, innocent people in here. (laughs) He admitted it. I deserve it. I'm wrong. I'm guilty. So there's that honest admission. Secondly, wanting to make a break from it. I acknowledge it, but now I want to go in the opposite direction. I don't want to do that anymore. Now Solomon, David's son, who was privy to this family mess, when he wrote the book of Proverbs, says, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. Confess and forsake, wanting to make a break from it. Third, a humble attitude. A humble attitude, open confession, wanting to make a break from it, and a humble attitude, a grief over it. I feel bad because of it. I do feel guilty because of it. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. David in Psalm 51 said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. I come to you with this broken heart of mine, Lord. I feel so bad, but here it is. Somebody once said, the only thing that's improved by breaking is the heart of a sinner. David's heart was broken. And that's a mark of genuine confession. Fourth, claiming God's forgiveness. Look in verse 5. David said, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I confessed it. I trust you. And you forgave me. Hey, David had consequences. Don't get me wrong. It's not like, oh, great. I confessed it. He suffered all of his life. But deep in his heart, he knew he was forgiven by God. And he rested in that. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Isn't that what the New Testament says? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whatever it might be, he cleanses. This brings us now to verse 6, the fourth point to be made here, and that is the path of conquering. Um, Let me just say as we read these verses that uh, David is instructing us with the mind of the Lord after having gone through it, of what we ought to be doing. 
And it brings to mind what David said in Psalm 51. He said afterwards, I will instruct sinners in your way. And I think here is what he promised he would do. He writes this instruction, verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now in those verses, he talks about the path of conquering that guilt and that sin. Number one, in verse six, turn to God quickly. That's how I would sum up that verse. Turn to God quickly. For it says, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. In Hebrew, it's literally this. They will pray to you in the time of finding out. As soon as you find out, as soon as you are aware, hey man, the light's gone on on the dashboard. This isn't right with God. At that point, turn to Him. Confess to Him. Forsake your sin. Don't wait. Don't presume upon God. Don't wait a year like David. David could have saved himself a whole year of verses 3 and 4 if he would have just done verse 5 a little earlier. Don't wait. Don't be like the taxpayer who sent the IRS a check for $150 with a note that said, Gentlemen, enclosed is a check for $150. I cheated on my income tax last year. I haven't been able to sleep since. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. Sincerely. (laughs) No. Deal with it all. The moment of finding out. Second, trust in God's discipline. Verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Verse 8, God promises to direct, to guide, to instruct. But verse 9 suggests that a believer who fails to obey God becomes like an animal, living only on the impulses of the flesh. Don't be like the horse or the mule, he says here. Now, there's two animals that are related, horse and mule, but very different in temperament, right? A horse wants to bolt ahead. A mule wants to stubbornly lag behind. That was David. He rushed ahead into sin, and he, like a mule, hesitated for a long time before he confessed it. So the warning here is this, verse 8 and 9 together, God is saying, I want to instruct you and guide you like children. If you won't let me, I'm going to have to deal more severely with you. I'm going to have to deal with you on a discipline level. Proverbs 26, verse 3, Solomon said, A whip for the horse, a halter for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. So trust in God's discipline. Turn to God quickly. Trust in God's discipline. Finally, trust in God's grace. Verse 10, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, David certainly didn't act righteous, right? He acted wicked. 
Did he kind of boast here? Well, you know, for the righteous, but for the wicked. In fact, David acted worse than the wicked because he said, I'm God's man. And yet underneath all of that time he was sinning in adultery, made it worse. But the point to be made here is this. God's relationship to the believer, because sin is dealt with at the cross in our case, God's relationship to the believer is one of grace, mercy. He deals with us in unmerited favor. He says, I'll cleanse you, I'll cover you, I'll lift the burden away if you confess it, if you turn to me, if you ask for my forgiveness. Trust in God's grace and mercy. You see, the devil comes and beats us down. First he comes and he tempts us and he says, go ahead, do that. Do that. You can do that. Do that. And you go, I don't know if I can. Don't worry, you'll get away with it. And so we succumb to his temptation and then he comes along and says, I can't believe you did that. You're never going to get away with this. What a creep. And then just beats us down in guilt when he was the one that incited us in temptation. He's the accuser of the brethren. That means man's greatest need is forgiveness. God's greatest accomplishment is forgiveness. The first word of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. It's because that's what they needed the most. What does this mean to me practically, personally? Simply this, for me to fail to forgive myself when I've confessed my sins to God, my past to God, if I fail to forgive myself, what I am saying is that I have a higher standard of forgiveness than God. And if I fail to forgive other people that God wants to forgive, same message, I have a higher standard of forgiveness even than God. They've asked for forgiveness. Tough. You know, God is a big eraser. Do you? Which side of the pencil do you carry around most? The one with the eraser? Or do you sharpen the other end? The writing side. And there you are. You'll record every wrong ever done to you. You'll remember it. You'll write it down indelibly in your conscience. They've wronged me. Doesn't the Bible say something about in 1 Corinthians 13, love never keeps a record of wrongs? Do you carry the pencil side more or the eraser side more? One of the greatest stories I ever heard about was of the great Polish pianist, Padruski, Jan Ignacy Padruski. And he was there with his piano in one city to play some great performance for the people who had come. Well, there was a woman, a mom, who brought her son, eight or nine years old. He had musical promise, talent. She thought if I could just expose him to greats like Padruski, He'd really learn a lot. It would accelerate his growth. So she brought him to the concert, sat in almost the front row before the concert started and people were talking. There was a woman that the mother recognized, so she turned back to talk to the acquaintance. When mom wasn't looking, the little kid squirreled out of his seat, jumped on the stage, sat on the bench, and started playing chopsticks on that piano. Mom was so embarrassed, appalled, and the crowd went, (gasps) Just then, Paderewski walked out on stage, went over to the piano, didn't get angry, smiled and said, whispered to him, keep playing. Put his arms around the little boy as he was playing chopsticks and began to improvise a soft but brilliant accompaniment to the notes he was playing till the crowd burst in applause. Now, that's a lot like God. We stumble, we fumble, we fall in all of our sins and difficulties. 
We're out there playing chopsticks. Psalm 103, God says that he knows our frame, that we're but dust. Think about that. God knows you're dust. He doesn't expect you to play anything but chopsticks. But he'll come along and put his arms around you. And we're going, look, God, chopsticks. And it sounds gross. He'll come along and put his arms around us. And with those faltering notes, he'll drown it out with his sweet melody of salvation accompaniment. So David said, oh, Lord, happy is the man whose sin is forgiven. Iniquity is forgiven. Transgression is forgiven. It's dealt with. Oh, the Christian can say this more than anybody else. Listen, don't go around saying, it's not my fault. I'm a victim. I'm not guilty. There is no sin. Admit it. Say it's sin and then ask God to forgive you. What a great feeling it is. That's the gospel. Happy is that man. Happy is that man. Don't keep it in. Confess. Forsake. And find mercy. Father, thank you for the mercy and grace that is extended to us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other message like it on earth. It's a message of cleansing. It's a message of acceptance. A message of covering up and not imputing our guilt to us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who have come today who don't know the pain of, who don't know the peace of cleansing. They only know what it's like to conceal. Lord, I pray that they would come to a place of admitting sin and asking your forgiveness on the basis of Jesus Christ on the cross. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.